As I was studying this passage, uh, I just uh, began to see some old truths in some new ways. And, and so I'm excited, but I'm also intimidated because when I get that excited about something, I know before I even start that I'm going to be frustrated trying to find the right words to, to adequately communicate what, what, what's here, what God has placed in, in these passages. But I want to give it a try. The passage we're looking at this morning, if you haven't turned there already, is Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Now, typically, this section is divided up into to three points, three parts. And each of them is taken by itself. Each of them is full of wonderful truth. But they're always taken apart. The fact is that all three of them fit together around one uh, critical theme. And this morning, rather than taking it apart and enjoying the wealth that we can find in each of the sections, I want to take it all together and see how it all fits together. So let me just start by reading the entire section and see if you can start to get a feel for what Paul is trying to do here. Starting in verse 2, Philippians 4.2. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul started by calling on two uh, leaders of of the church there in Philippi to be at peace with each other. Then he goes on to tell us how we can experience the peace of God. And then he finally ends up by talking about how we enjoy fellowship with the God of peace. I'm no rocket scientist, but it seems like this is about peace. Now, what is uh, is the peace that, that Paul's talking about? You know, usually when we talk about peace, we're just talking about the absence of conflict. When we talk about peace between nations, we mean that those two countries uh, aren't in open aggression toward each other. There's no war going on. When we talk about internal peace, we talk about the absence of internal conflict. We're at rest within ourselves. But the biblical concept of peace goes way Beyond that, and if we're going to apply that biblical concept of peace to the uh, to political issues, to the relationships between nations, it's more than there's no open fighting. You know, in Bosnia, a, a ceasefire in Bosnia does not mean peace in, in the in the biblical sense. It just simply means that the people there aren't shooting each other temporarily. You know, it's not going to be until those people in that region sit down and talk openly and honestly and begin working together for each other's benefit that we will see real peace. Prior to 1989, 
Well, for 70 years, there had been no open, direct conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. So technically, we were at peace. But again, not in the biblical sense of the word peace. It wasn't until there was a radical change in the government in Russia that we've been able to work together for some common goals. And who knows how, how long that will last. You know, in, in families... There may be no open conflict. A husband and a wife, parents and children, living together in the same home, not screaming at each other. There's no physical abuse going on. But no real peace in the biblical sense. There's simply a mutually maintained non-aggression pact, staying out of each other's way, avoiding real relationship. There's no intimacy. There's no sharing of each other's lives and supporting each other. When it comes to internal peace, the biblical concept is not just the absence of internal conflict. You can get that from transcendental meditation or Eastern religions, a peace that comes from emptying your mind, from denying the existence of objective truth, from abandoning all desires, from absorbing yourself in the oneness of the universe. See, if you, if you perfect the, the, the uh, techniques of these religions, you can experience lack of internal conflict. But that's not what God has in mind. The, the scriptural concept of peace, the peace that scripture advocates, is, uh, is a mind that is engaged fully with its creator, that is not losing itself, a, a mind that is, that is involved with him, getting to know oneself. Honestly, courageously, and bringing one's desires and needs before God. So it's a whole different direction, one that moves toward relationship, intimacy with God. When it gets to the bottom line, the peace of scriptures is not just a negative, uh, the absence of conflict. Peace in scripture is always a movement toward intimacy. A movement toward support and, and encouragement and benefit. A movement toward love. That's why Paul started this letter to the Philippians by telling them that his prayer for them was that their love would abound more and more and more and the result would be honor and praise to God. Because that's what we're after. We want to honor and praise God. We want to reflect His character. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when uh, he was telling them how people would know that they were really his followers? He said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It's in John 13. In John 17, Jesus says, The way that people will know I am who I say I am is the unity among Christians. In fact, that's, that's the way we even know that we've been reborn. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. See, John sums up all of Christianity in two things. He says, it's basically to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He has commanded us. 1 John 3.23 so that's it. That, that's what it's all about. Well, if that's what it's all about, then why 
are our homes? Why are Christian homes so explosive? Why do we fight so with our husbands or wives? Why are we so volatile with our children? Why are Christian churches so completely shot through with strife and arguing and resentment? You know, one of the, the worst things you could ever do to your spiritual life is to get involved in church leadership. It is one of the most disillusioning things that can happen to a person. I, I remember a, a young friend that I've got who uh, was a college student when I was involved in that ministry, decided he wanted to get into full-time Christian ministry, went away to seminary, graduated from seminary, got uh, involved in a church. And I remember our first phone conversation after he did. He was telling me how confused he was and how frustrated he was. He had come wanting to do the, the ministry he had been trained to do. And all of his time and energy was spent fending off attacks from people in the body or from other leaders. I had the uh, unfortunate job of explaining to him that, sadly, sad as it is, that's a lot of what church leadership is consumed with. You know, in this congregation, we have quite a number of people who were in full-time Christian ministry, but who were chewed up by that process. If, if you get an opportunity, talk to one of them, ask them, just how disillusioning it is to work in Christian leadership. What is going on? Why should this be? Well, let's get into our passage. I think we've got the answers there. Not all the answers, but some very important ones. Paul starts by saying, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. He urges each of them individually. None of this, I will if she will. And Paul comes straight at each of them. It's each of our responsibility before God to, to face into the problems and to address them, to bring them to God and be, to, to seek to resolve them. You know, when I, I, I do marriage counseling, one of the first goals is to get each person to stop waiting for the other one but to begin to look at themselves and, and to come before God themselves and see what he would have them to do to seek love and reconciliation. It's between each of us and our God whether we will honor him and seek reconciliation. And notice uh, what he urges them to do. He doesn't urge them to just stay away from each other. He urges them Literally, to be of one mind. Now, I apologize for the way the NIV translates this. It says, agree with each other. That makes it, it sound like everybody's got to agree on everything. What they like for lunch, what uh, color of shirt to wear. Uh, as if the, the point is the conclusions we come to. But that's not the point. You see, the, the word he uses is far more fundamental. It doesn't talk so much about what we think, but how we think. You see, these, these ladies that he's, he's referring to were mature Christian leaders. These were some of the key leaders in that church there in Philippi. They had been Paul's partner in, in starting the church. And after Paul left, they continued to be leaders in that church. These were mature believers. Mature Christians disagree. Mature Christian leaders within a church will, will each look at the same situation and from their own experience, their own understanding of Scripture, their own assessment of the needs, they'll come to different conclusions about what should be done. Uh, mature Christian expositors disagree on how to understand a given passage of Scripture. Mature Christian mothers and fathers disagree on how to discipline their children. 
Mature Christians disagree a lot. But the point that Paul wants to to, to make is to emphasize how we disagree. The word he uses here talks about having the same mind, but what he means is having the same attitude toward each other, the same disposition toward each other, the same way of thinking about each other. It's a very difficult word to translate from the Greek. As I looked at a variety of translations, different people chose different different English words to try to translate it. Uh, one person uh, used the word, uh, let's see, where is it? He says, uh, one person uses the word to, 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 uh, I can't find myself on the notes. I'm not even on this page. <laughs> I'm sorry. I knew it was there somewhere, but I <laughs> <clears throat> told you I was going to be frustrated. It, to think in a certain way. Another used the, the concept of to feel a certain way about each other. Another used the concept of have a certain attitude, a way of reacting and relating to each other. The whole point here is that we are to have the same attitude. Paul's been setting us up for this word. In chapter 1, in verse 7, he says, I have this way of thinking about you. Now, he's talking about these Philippians who had a lot of problems, and some of them were very much against Paul. But what he says is, I have every confidence that God, who began a good work, is going to finish it, and I rejoice because of you. That's how Paul thought of them. And in chapter 2, Paul uses the same word to try to get us to think like Christ. First, he says, have the same mind toward each other. And then he defines that. He says, the same love, the same spirit, the same purpose. Then he goes on to say, have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. And he he begins to explain what he means by that. The mind that was in Christ Jesus was a mind, that, uh, an attitude that, that, that led him to give up his rights as God. He didn't hold on to those. He laid them aside to come and, and to love us and to serve us. You know, if anyone could have said, you don't treat me well enough. You don't show me enough respect or deference. Jesus could have. But he doesn't. You know, we hurt him. We hurt him often. But he doesn't focus on, on his hurt or our offense. No, he gives up his rights to serve us. He, 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 he forgives our offenses to love us and to gently lead us. And that's the attitude. That's the way of relating that Paul wants to see these two Christian leaders, these two godly women adopt. In the late uh, 1700s, there were two great evangelists that were leading hundreds to the Lord and starting dozens of churches throughout the United States and England. These two men, George uh, Whitfield, Charles Wesley, disagreed on a lot of things, including some of their theology. And these two guys had disagreed openly. They had publicly debated many times over the years. One time, some of George Whitfield's followers came to him and they said, do you think we'll see Charles Wesley in heaven? (laughs) Whitfield uh, looked at them with sadness in his eyes and he said, no, I don't think so. And with a twinkle in his eye, he said, "Uh, Charles Wesley will probably be so close to the throne of God and we'll be so far away, we'll just never run into each other. 
You see, that's the kind of attitude Paul wants to see. That, that mutual respect, that common purpose, even when we disagree. This permeates our attitudes. In a growth group that I was involved in years ago, Becky and I were in, there were several young families. Two of those families were homeschooling. Two were uh, had their children in public schools. Becky and I have our children in, in Christian school. And as time went on, we discovered that we were not of the same mind. What would happen is one of the homeschooling moms would share about how hard it was for her to keep up with the housework. And everybody would say, well, yeah, if you put your kids in real school, you'd have time for those things. <laughs> or Becky and I might share about, about, about some of our financial struggles. And they'd say, well, yeah, if you wouldn't be putting all that money to keep your kids in private school, you wouldn't be so strapped. Or one of, the, one of the, the, the parents with their children in public school would share their heartache about what their children may be being exposed to. And everybody would think, yeah, if you'd get your kids out of that godless environment, you wouldn't have to worry about it. We were not of the same mind. When we realized that, we stopped and, and talked about it. And we recognized that we really did respect each other and each other's walks with God. We knew that the decisions being made were being made in dependence on God and out of genuine love for our children. We just came to different conclusions. And when we, we stopped and realized that, we were freed up to support each other in the different decisions we had come to. Several people were freed up to go help that homeschooling mom catch up on her homework her sco- or her work at home. And we were able to pray for each other and support and encourage each other in the different decisions that we had come to. That's what having the same mind is. Not that we come to the same conclusions, but that we respect each other, that we support and love and serve each other. That's what Paul is calling on us to do here. Freeing us to to love even those we disagree with. In passing, notice that he says, it's being of the same mind in the Lord. That's the basis for our attitude. We have a supernatural basis for our harmony. It doesn't come spontaneously. It doesn't come naturally. It's a product of Christ's work in us. You know, it's, it's His mind at work in our lives that frees us to embrace even those we disagree. The natural tendency, because all Christians or all people tend to be insecure, is we feel estranged. We, we, we kind of hold people we disagree with out here because it threatens us and frightens us. When we have the mind of Christ, we're free to embrace and to support and to accept and encourage. That's why it's such a powerful testimony to the life of Christ such a powerful demonstration of His life when we can love even those we disagree with. Well, next Paul calls on the believers to help these two women come to this way of thinking. He calls some people specifically by name. Some other leaders say, come on, help these ladies come to this way of thinking. See, that's the business of the church. That's our business in supporting each other. It is not loving for us to take sides, to say, yeah... Eodia was right. That's Sintiki. She's just nothing but trouble. You know, after all, you know what she said to me last week? Now, that's not loving. It's not loving to talk down the person that, that, that's in a struggle with our friend. When someone comes to you and tells you about a struggle with their spouse, it's not loving to say, yeah, you sure married a jerk. What's loving 
is to gently move them toward respecting, loving, serving their spouse, serving that person that they're in conflict with. This is what honors God. This is our challenge. Even when we think that the person we're talking to is absolutely right. See, that's not the point. Loving like Christ does, even when the other person's wrong, is the point. Now Paul says to them, he says, Rejoice always in the Lord. Again I say, rejoice. You know, nothing takes our joy away quicker than these conflicts, than this, these struggles. These are the things that, that wake you up in the middle of the night. And as soon as we stop rejoicing in the Lord, we're defeated. Our attitude begins to sour. We begin a process of, of grumbling and worrying and fretting. And it just goes over and over and over in our minds. We, we begin to come at other people with what we call in our family a attitude. We have this, this chip on our shoulder, this, this kind of inclination to make sure everyone knows just how upset we are. And that everyone is just as unhappy as we are. And as soon as we start that process, we're defeated. Well, how do we rejoice? I mean, conflict, disagreement is no fun. Do we just paint on a happy face? No. Notice again, it's we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in His love for us, His delight in us, that He loves us and is delighted in us no matter what anybody else happens to think of us at the time. And if our security, if our identity is in people liking us, thinking highly of us, we're going to lose that as soon as we're in conflict, as soon as there's a disagreement, as soon as somebody doesn't fully agree with us. But if our identity, our security is in His love, that He loved me and gave Himself for me, that He is delighted in me, then I can venture out from that position of strength and security. I can venture out and love. Paul says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. And this is a, a power-packed statement. It's another one of those very difficult words to translate. One person translates it to gentleness, another forbearance, another one meekness, let your meekness be made known to all. Another one that I liked was softness. One of the most creative was a guy by the name of Williams who translated this, let your willingness to meet someone more than halfway be made known to all. You see, what Paul wants us to be known for is our willingness to work out problems. Now, how different is that from what Christians are typically known for? We're usually known for our unwillingness to work things out, to meet people halfway, to talk things through. But what Paul is calling on us is to be that kind of person. The the, the word in the Greek refers to going beyond what is right to what is generous. You know, we can get so hung up on who's right that we forget all about what's loving. Who is right is not the critical thing. Paul doesn't come at these women and say, okay, this one's right, this one's wrong, deal with it. Now, what's right, what he's after is the way they relate, the way they work it through, the way they uh, they treat and, and their attitude toward each other. You know, when we get so hung up on the fact that we are right, and that, therefore, the other person must be wrong, and really, they're the one that should apologize. We get frozen in our self-righteous position. We can be absolutely right and still be 
wrong because of our attitude, because of our lack of gentleness and softness. Theological wordbook of the New Testament uh, defines this word as clemency that comes from strength. It goes on to to discuss a person who is secure enough in their strength that they can be merciful. They can go beyond justice like Jesus did with the woman caught in adultery. He, he, He didn't say adultery was right. He said, go and sin no more. But what those Pharisees lacked, those Pharisees who wanted her executed lacked, was the love that goes beyond what's right without ever denying what is right. You see, we can, we can be sure that we are right. We understand the scriptures, but we can still do that with gentleness and softness. We can hold on to what's right and hold it forth boldly, but we can still do that with gentleness and softness when we're secure in the Lord. It's when we're insecure in ourselves and in our Lord that we start to posture and be insistent and unyielding. I have a very small dog. But just about everything she ever encounters is bigger and stronger than she is. And as a result, she's very insecure. And when she gets frightened, she yips and she snaps. She's real obnoxious. Our neighbor, on the other hand, has this huge golden lab. I mean, this thing's head is bigger than our dog. And I don't think anything can hurt Yukon. One time, uh, our neighbor had him in the back of his truck, heading up 21 to Idaho City. He's going about 55 miles an hour. He looked in his rearview mirror, and here's this guy blinking his headlights and waving. So Kurt pulled over, and the guy comes up and says, Hey, about a mile and a half back, your dog just stepped out of the back of your truck. So Kurt turned around, and, he, and he's looking in the ditch, thinking he's going to find Yukon there. Got all the way back to, you know, that crow's nest that was there on, on Highway 21. And there was Yukon, tail wagon, trying to get in the back of somebody else's truck. <laughs> Kurt took him to the vet, and other than a little piece of his nose missing and a, a skinned-up spot on his shoulder, Yukon was absolutely fine. See, Yukon is big and strong and virtually indestructible. And partly because of that, he's one of the sweetest dogs you'll ever see. You know, He is not afraid. And as a result, he's free to be gentle, to be happy, to to be secure. You see, much of our uh, conflict and fighting comes out of our insecurity. It comes out of our anxiety. It comes out of our fear. That that fear energizes our our arguments. It masks itself as conviction. And a church leader insists on a certain course thinking that that's conviction, when really what it is, he's afraid for what's going to happen to the church, and he feels it's up to him to save it. I can remember a conversation I had with a young high school student and, and his parents. This was a good kid, you know, not perfect, but he really did love the Lord. But he was complaining that his parents didn't trust him. They had all these rules. They were so strict and rigid. As I talked to his parents, it was obvious that they really loved him. They're acting out of fear. You know, if we, if we let down the rules, what's going to happen to him? If we don't force him to learn, what will happen to his future? But you see, acting out of fear, the result was the opposite of the one they wanted. They were pushing him away, pushing him toward rebellion. And I've got to admit that in, in conflicts with my children, they receive much of their destructive energy out of my fear. If I don't teach them discipline, what will their future be like? Well, I do want to teach them discipline. But when I'm doing that energized by fear, 
I lose that softness, that, that gentleness that is so critical to my nurturing and my training of them. And when I lose that, I lose access to them inside. I build walls and I can no longer get inside to help them become truly self-disciplined. Sometime back, uh, I had a woman in my office who was almost frantic. Her husband, who was a believer, wasn't growing in his walk with the Lord. She had come to him to talk to him about that. And he had just pushed her away, not physically, but emotionally with a lot of energy, feeling like she was pressuring him. And that just alarmed her all the more. She began to become frightened. What's going to happen to our marriage? What's going to happen to our relationship? We'll never be able to move toward greater intimacy. She saw this frightening future in which none of her needs were going to be met or even addressed. She began to become afraid for him because the path that he was on was taking him away from God and away from the family. And he, on the other hand, became frightened that that, that his wife had too great of expectations. He could never live up to them all. If he bought into her way of thinking, he would just be constantly subject to ever-escalating demands, and and he was afraid of that. And the result of all of this is that the the conflict in their home had escalated to the point where it had frightened both of them. You see, her concerns were right. Her assessment of the need for change was accurate. But energized by fear, the fruit, the result was conflict and anxiety and discord in the home. So much of our conflict comes not because our thinking is wrong, not because our approach is wrong, but because we are energized by fear rather than love. And when we come with that energy, we get trapped into patterns of conflicts in our relationships. Well, how how do we break these patterns of conflict? First thing is to remind ourselves that, as Paul says, the Lord is near. He's paying attention. He's not watching from a distance. He's watching from up close, and he is involved. He cares about me and my needs. He cares about those people I love. In fact, he loves my husband or my wife more than I do. He loves your son or your daughter more than you do. He loves your boss at work, obviously, more than you do. See, he is involved and he cares. And that leads to to the next verse. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He says, don't worry. Talk to God about it. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines faith. He says, faith is refusal to panic. Paul says, by prayer and petition. Prayer is expressing our own needs, coming to God with our own feelings and, and desires and struggles. And petition or intercession is praying for others, praying for that person we're in conflict with, praying for that person that we're afraid for. Praying for our families, praying for our marriages, praying for our relationships at work. We're to bring all of these things to God. The command is, do not worry, but instead bring these things to God. And this is a key phrase, with thanksgiving. 
See, we can bring these things to God with all kinds of demands that He do exactly what we tell Him to do. We can bring these things to God with anger that He let things get so bad in the first place. But what Paul is calling us to do is to bring these things to God with thanksgiving. Because as soon as we give thanks, we've started to worship. And as Joe Aldrich says, you can worry or you can worship. But you can't do both at the same time. You see, you come and you say, God, I don't understand what's going on here. But I thank you that you do. And that you're in control. As soon as you said, but I thank you, you've begun to worship. You've begun to both remind yourself and to state out loud the truth about God and who he is. You know, you say, God, I'm worried about my son. He doesn't seem to have any time for you in his life. But I thank you that you love him even more than I do. And that you won't stop pursuing him. Again, as soon as you said, but I thank you, you've reminded yourself of the truth. You've moved toward faith. Say, God, I, I think I'm losing my job here. But I thank you that you've taken care of me, that you've provided for me so far, and I have every reason to expect you will continue to provide for me. Again, as soon as you say, but I thank you, you're moving toward faith. You can't thank him without doing this. Faith and fear are antithetical. That's why it is so critical that when we bring these things to God, we bring them with thanksgiving. He says, when you do... Paul tells us that the experience, uh, the experience of God's peace, which transcends all understanding, will flood your hearts and minds. Now, the reason this peace transcends all understanding is that there's no visible reason for it. Uh, nothing has really changed. The situation is still the same. The conflict is still there. The problem is still there. But the burden has been lifted. It's been put where it belongs. On God's shoulders. Peter says, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. See, you can be at peace. He cares and He has heard. And as a result, you can act gently, softly, generously. You may still need to go and confront your husband, but you do so out of peace and out of love rather than out of fear. You still need to discipline your children, but you do so out out of strength and out of love rather than fear. You may still need to go talk to your boss or that other person at work, but you do so with the security and God's love and His care rather than out of fear. It's interesting what the peace of God which transcends all understanding does for you. It guards your hearts and your mind. The word guard is fascinating. literally means to arrest, to hold in custody, to constrain. It throws you against the front of the car and puts the handcuffs on you. Now, what does it constrain us? Well, our hearts and our minds are our emotions and our thinking. What does it guard our emotions and our thinkings from? Well, this is one of the most important yet most overlooked keys to working through problems. The peace of God guards our emotions and our thinking from all of the garbage that comes flooding into our attitude as soon as we're in conflict with someone. You know, if I'm in a fight with Becky, and as ridiculous as it seems that I would ever fight with such a, a godly and wonderful woman as God has given me for a wife, I still manage to do it sometimes. When I'm fighting with her, immediately what happens is my heart and my mind, my thinking and my emotions get flooded with all the negative stuff I can think of. You know, I, I say, she always does this. You know, or she never does this. 
whatever is weak, whatever is deficient, whatever is worthy of criticism, if there be any fault, if there be any offense, I let my mind dwell on these things. And as I do, I build such a case against her in my mind that I feel completely justified in the hateful way I treat her. See, we are able to do that when we're dealing with our, our family. So we can dredge up things that are 30, 40 years old, some of us. <laughs> when we're dealing with somebody at work, we remember even the, even the slights that they don't even have a clue that they committed against us. That's why Paul ends, finishes up with, with verse 8, verse 9. Let me just read verse 8 to you. This is where Paul is telling us how we should think about those with whom we're in conflict. What we should flood our hearts and our, our minds with concerning them. I'll elaborate just a little bit, but let me, let me read this through. Whatever is true, whatever is noble or worthy of respect, whatever is right, whatever is pure or innocent, whatever is lovely, literally that which evokes love in you, that endears them to you, makes you love them, Whatever is admirable or attractive or appealing, if anything is excellent about them, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, we've got to stop those tapes that we play in our head that just tear them down and instead plug in tapes that build them up, that that, that endear them to us. And that is so critical to the process. And then Paul says... This is exactly what he demonstrated when he was among them. That's the way he worked through problems with the, with the people there, even those that opposed him. He thought the best of them. He treated them with respect. You know, Paul has a reputation for being a confronter. We read his letters, and he's coming straight at people. Well, that's right. We need to be honest. We need to come straight at people, uh, to, to, to face into the hard things with the people we love. Avoidance, denial is not love. But we need to do it like Paul did, thinking the best, showing respect, humbly, like Jesus did, giving up our rights to love and to serve that person. Really, the uh, principles of conflict resolution that Paul has been teaching us are very simple. First, adopt Christ's way of thinking. That is, we don't hold on to our rights. We don't hold on to our hurts. We lay those aside to serve others. Second, We act gently, not preoccupied with being right. Third, we, instead of letting fear gum up the whole process, we pray with thanksgiving. And fourth and finally, instead of tearing that person down in our mind, we fill our hearts and minds with all the good and right about them, all the things that will endear them to us. And the culmination of this is not that we'll be able to work through every conflict we come into. The sad fact is, even if we put all of these principles into play, some people will insist on being in conflict with us. That's, we can't change their hearts. That's between them and God. The culmination of all of this, working for peace, is that the God of peace will be with you. You will enjoy fellowship with Him. See, all this stuff that Paul has been describing is really the way God relates to us. He, he, he doesn't hold our offenses against us. He forgives them to love us. He loves us out of His strength. He's gentle with us, even when we're wrong. He thinks of us in Christ. He looks at us as righteous in Christ. He doesn't dwell on all of our weaknesses and deficiencies and faults and failures. He looks at us through 
Christ and he loves us. He's delighted in us. See, God is the God of peace because his character brings peace and he delights when we are at peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Like father, like son. See, there's no better way to honor God. There's no better way to delight God. There's no better way to enjoy with Him the fellowship that can only be shared by people of the same mind than for us to be at peace. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, are so often in conflict. We do deal with the our, our tendency to, to to hold on to our hurts, and to our rights, to to convince ourselves how right we are, so that we can look down and, or, or be critical of the other person. We can tell other people, and they can agree with us. And we uh, rehearse their faults rather than thinking highly. We don't bring it to you. We don't thank you. We don't worship you and praise you. Lord, I ask that you teach us these principles. Make us like you. Make us your children who are peacemakers. Lord, I pray for this body as a church that we would practice these things and there would be peace here that would show the world who you are, that we are your followers. I pray for us in our homes that there would be peace there, that we would abandon fear, come to you in rejoicing and in praise, bringing our cares to you. And that we would address each other with respect, with deference, the real desire to love, to build up. Pray for us uh, individually as we live in this world that you would show your character through us. That others would know that you truly are a God of love and a God of peace. Pray this in your name. Amen.